0: i'm steve mcleod and this is bootstrapped it's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one i run two bootstrapped software products feature upvote which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product And Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts. And just maybe you'll learn something too. I'm joined today by frequent guest co-host Ed Freifogel. Hello, Ed. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I'm not doing bad. Tell me what's happening at OpenCage these days. Well, you know, we're back. We're back.
1: Uh, school's been back in southern for about a month. So we've gotten much more into the normal rhythm of day-to-day routine again, now that my kids are out of the house. So we had a big backlog of things, of little things that had piled up over the whole lockdown and summer, little really tedious kind of tasks. And so we've been spending a lot of time trying to fix all those like... Um, I don't know, listeners may recall, we added a new type of billing. So in addition to subscriptions, we added one-time payments and we had a lot of assumptions in our code. We're kind of assumed, assumed if you're a customer, you must be a subscription customer. But some of those assumptions, obviously, never, so basically very nitty gritty, painful kind of stuff, finding little edge cases and things. And also it seems the customers are back from summer break as well. So we've had kind of a big surge in kind of customer support things and so we're getting back into the routine where you know it's the normal soft roller coaster we have we have days that are days that are really good where you know for some reason a wave of customers shows up and then we have days or you know where where it's less good and um but it feels good to be back into the normal pace of things we did have one one exciting new development that I wanted to share with listeners, though, and that is you know for a long time my my co-founder and i we've been trying to think about charitable causes that we can support and things like that. And we do quite a bit kind of in the the open data world. But we wanted to do something on kind of the climate change front. and so we we were like, oh, maybe we could, you know one of these charities where you um plant trees and things like that. So I spent some time doing some research on that. And it's quite complicated, actually, to have, you know, who should you give money to? And is it really a cost-effective way to give the money? And, you know, is this is this a good idea or not? And so, unfortunately, that kind of led to, you know, paralysis through analysis. And we, we kind of, it was always easy to kind of delay this project. But then I saw something really cool. So I don't know if you know, but Stripe, our, our payment processor, um, they about six months ago, they launched this thing called the climate fund, whereby they committed they're going to give a certain amount of money to funding carbon reduction technologies. And but here's where it gets really cool. So, so I mean that's great. And they, you know, they're kind of really pushing these cutting-edge kind of technologies that hopefully are going to help save the world. But here's the cool thing: we can we can opt into this program. They have a beta program, which we've now opted into where each transaction that of ours that gets processed through Stripe, 1% of the revenue will now go into their carbon fund. So, it's great for us because it's like, we can have confidence this is going to go to things that are actually going to help. And it's no effort at all on our part. So, so we did that. And um, it's really cool. And... Uh, we feel good about it and, um, and it gets integrated directly. If you use Stripe checkout, it gets integrated. You know, there's a little blurb at the bottom of Stripe checkout that automatically appears. It says, you know, OpenGage is now donating 1% of revenue to help fund,
0: you know, these carbon capture things. So that's cool. So you're doing this purely out of a feeling of goodwill and not in order to increase sales or make yourself more sellable no. to your customers. Yeah, the main reason is
1: I enjoy living on Earth, mm. Steve, and, yeah. and I'm hopeful that, you know. Oh, well, you just uh, say that because you haven't tried Mars, Saturn, or Jupiter. <laughs> true, it's true. No, and, yeah, so the main motivation was just uh, we thought it was a worthy cause that we wanted to get behind. Um, but, of course, given that we're doing it, uh, there's no reason not to try to get uh, the marketing benefit out of it. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's cool that it appears on the checkout pages and, of course, of course, we did a blog post about it, and then on our kind of about us page and pages like that, we also then linked to the blog post where we explain it and stuff. So,
0: and it's cool. And I think I, I missed it. If you said it, how how much of the sales of your sales go to this? Is it a p- small percentage? It's, or? it's a
1: one one percent of revenue. Uh, you can set it to be whatever you want. Um, okay. So, in our case, in our case, we're doing one percent of revenue. Okay. Um yeah and it, and it just gets deducted straight off out of of Stripe's monthly bill. Okay. So, so that
0: uh, 1% doesn't seem much, but revenue is very different to profit and for a, a company uh, companies different have different levels of profitability and it could end up being quite a big chunk of profit for some companies. So it's, it's a good move.
1: Yeah, I mean so it, it, I agree 1%. It, did you ever see that cartoon where yeah, unfortunately it was it was it was made like 10 years ago or whatever where it shows a bunch of people at a conference and, and one guy's up on the stage and he um, on his slide, it says like, you know, by combating climate change, we're also going to, um, you know, improve health, save lots of money because we're not going to have to pay for disasters, make a better world for our children, all these things. And then some guy in the audience raises his hand. He's like, well, what if we what if we do all those good things and it turns out climate change isn't real? you know so i don't know i think you know this is going to be the topic of of our lifetimes and so yeah yeah you know it's better to be on the right side of it so and and in our case many of our customers are companies in the transportation industry so or logistics and things so lots of vehicles moving around and it's a big topic in that category,
0: obviously. Yeah. Um, I applaud you for actually making a financial commitment and not just having some wishy-washy stuff like we don't print things or something like that, but you really have made something that financially affects you. Yes. Yeah. So
1: let's see. I mean, hopefully, hopefully by contributing there and um, I encourage all of our listeners, if you're using Stripe, you should definitely opt into it. I think it's really clever move on Stripe's part as well, both, I mean, a good for for the planet, but also very clever, you know, customer retention tool. It would it kind of makes it harder for us to leave Stripe, so you know, it's a win for, win for everyone. Mm. So get involved. Anyway, that's all I got, Steve. What have you been up to?
0: I have two things to report. First, let's start with feature upvote. Uh, we did a big pricing change. The reason we did this was because of this post they made a couple of months ago about our pricing to date, how we've changed it, and how it went onto the front page of Hacker News, and surprisingly, a a pretty interesting conversation happened on Hacker News, and a couple of comments were like, well, this tool, I would expect to be paying $200 for it, and someone else said, like, if you really have these billion-dollar companies as customers, then it should be more, and it's true, we do have these billion-dollar companies as customers and other people were talking about how they approach it as a, as a purchaser of SaaS services and how sometimes they just want the highest price thing just to feel more comfortable about support. Yeah. And it got me thinking, uh, are we charging not enough money? And on top of that, a couple of people who regularly make their financials available to me, they also have B2B SaaS companies. I see that their revenue per customer per month is more like about $100 Whereas we're about $50 per customer per month, which okay. also suggests to me that we like we could afford to charge a lot more. So I decided just to go for a 3 tiered pricing. So we had $49 per month. We've now got $49, 99 $249. So the $49 plan has become the $99 plan. Um, the new $49 plan is what was our unpublished bootstrapper plan, which limits some of the features, but ultimately is very usable. And then the highest price plan adds um, priority support and SSO and so on. Yeah. And what's the result are people buying? Um, too early to tell. Within a few hours, we did have somebody choose the $100 plan, which is, that was really nice, you know, to put the price up and straight away somebody just chooses the more expensive plan. That was That felt like I hadn't made a big mistake. But it's only been a couple of weeks, so it's really, I don't want to make too many assumptions yet. But we've had a couple of people complain. They had started a trial on the old pricing. And then even though in their billing page, we still showed them the old pricing, we showed them the pricing as of the date their trial started. They were a bit confused by whether they're seeing two different things. So we had to do some placating there and make, make it very clear that they still got the old pricing because they started their trial before we did the new. Yeah. Pricing. Well,
1: I do think that that's one thing that sometimes left off. Obviously a lot of the South gurus are always like, raise your price, raise your price. And, and then like, Oh, you can just give the old customers the old price, which, you know, of course you can, but it's, a, there is some maintenance burden there of then, You yeah. have to have different people on different plans and you have to make sure the wording is, the, is correct. Otherwise you confuse them and stuff. So it's not quite as trivial as just, you know, scratching out the 49 and putting
0: 99 yeah especially it's, when you yeah. go from single tiered to three tiers yeah. Um, exactly yeah so we now have like a whole set of legacy pricing points in our system our pricing page in stripe is just so much stuff there and sure. i'd like to clean it up but i can't people still are still on these older plans uh so and then especially once you get into multiple currencies and things oh yeah you're right. For every tier, we have two prices: the annual pricing, the monthly pricing, and three currencies. And if you multiply it all together, three, three t- tiers, six, three. <laughs> Why can't I do it in my head? Is that 18? Wait, eighteen? Eighteen
1: you know, different. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> yeah, but but you raise a good point of how to better price discriminate. So, you know, how do you make sure that the billion-dollar company who has no problem paying five hundred a month pays five hundred a month while you know, you still want the bootstrapper that's going to pay 49 a month. And how do you do that in a way that you can do it? You know, it's
0: uh, That's tricky, I think. Yeah. yeah, raising prices is not as easy as people say. In fact, pricing in general is tough. I, yeah. I'm still not convinced we have got it optimized, but we'll see how it goes for a few months. Anyway, positive development. Positive result. The, the second thing I wanted to report is a Sabre feedback. I'm going to say it was a problem. We tried to my, migrate our our server from an old Linode service instance to a new Linode instance. And we done our preparation. We had a migration plan, blah, blah. And we set about doing it. When I say we and me and my system administrator, and after two hours, we, we had to revert. Like the new server just wasn't behaving the way we thought it should. That's and a downer. It is a downer. Um, in fact, one of the reasons why we... Went ahead and did it already. Was the last conversation we had. You kind of made the point that saber feedback is at heart just a pretty basic CRUD app, and it's nothing that difficult about making sure you know it works in the new version of MySQL, uh, PHP, etc. Yeah. Turns no. out <laughs> there are some tricky things going on uh, that we weren't aware of, and we've now identified them. We've created a better staging server for testing all this. Um I had to actually go back to Matt Beerman, the guy who sold me Saber feedback and ask for his help. And it turns out there were some really important configuration issues for the server that were only recorded in his head that weren't hmm. written down anywhere.
1: I'm kind of surprised by that though because you know again my assumption is it's just a standard crowd app as you say so why why should, why should special configuration be needed but
0: well, it's the image manipulation because it takes screenshots, and it's kind of not easy to take a, well, a, a arbitrary a screenshot of an arbitrary website, no matter what browser the person was viewing it in. It has to look like it looked on the customer's browser and device, I see. and so on. I see. So this is the tricky stuff, and we're actually using a third party service to to run Selenium that. Knows about a whole lot of different browsers and operating systems and devices to take these, and then sometimes the images then have to be stitched together back on a server with like a highlighting overlay and so on. Furthermore, you get into HTTP versus HTTPS problems. Um, sure. Yeah, so it turned out to be not as simple as I thought.
1: You know what, Steve? I had no idea you offered this feature. That's actually quite cool that you get the screenshot of what the user actually saw. I don't, I don't, I, I haven't studied server feedback in detail, but that. Oh, you should,
0: you, know, <laughs> you should. It's that's pretty an interesting, interesting.
1: I mean, do you, I don't recall seeing it in your marketing materials. I mean, that's actually quite a nice feature.
0: It's funny you Not should that. say that because when we did customer research, some people said it was the screenshot facility that won them over. So maybe we need to do more about promoting that. Yeah. yeah um, fact, anyway,
1: so were you, were you able to resolve this configuration issue?
0: Uh, we're going to try again next week. We've, we believe, well, we believe we've resolved it. But it actually brings me to a bigger discussion which is knowledge sharing how you actually make sure these important pieces of information get captured and not just uh amongst teams but even amongst an for an individual if you're just running a one person operation um do you have much of a experience with knowledge sharing yourself and your team
1: you well uh, this is quite a timely discussion because my my co-founder and I we work in different we work remotely so we we see each other physically quite quite infrequently and obviously now even less with the, the travel restrictions. So, yeah, we, we've actually been thinking exactly as our business has become more complex and it's kind of natural that you kind of specialize, like one person becomes the expert on one system and the other guy the expert on the other system. And then at some point you realize, oh, I don't really know how that works anymore. So we're going to start kind of a regular series where every week we're going to do a call, a half hour call. So we of limit it to half an hour. And... And each week we're going to alternate and the person, one person can kind of say, I don't know how a system X works. You know, it might be a technical system. It might be like, I don't know how, you know, how do we reconcile the, our customers that we send an invoice to? How does that work? And how do we reconcile the invoices? And how do we like, what's the whole process around that? And then it's the job of the other person who does know that system to kind of, you know, write up a brief documentation and, and present it in the call. And with the goal that the person who asked the question can then at the end, you know, have at least high level familiarity with the system and know where to look and understand the concepts and things like that. So we're actually going to just start on that later this afternoon is the first one. Um, How will you record this information? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that yet, how we could best do that. I mean, our current method of documentation is kind of, we have a few text files in, in our Git repo that kind of explain at a high level, explain systems rather than... The problem is if you try to have hyper-accurate documentation, it inevitably goes out of date very quickly. Yeah, And and then you have the maintenance burden. So I think it's better to just say, here are the concepts, here's what we're trying to do, and here's the area, here's where to look. You know, it uses this tool or it uses this part of the code base or whatever. And then within those tools or that part of the code base, hopefully you have things that are organized, you know well organized and in in a coherent method and you kind of follow standards. You know, like we have we have a lot of tests for our, our software and, and those kind of follow a standard. So that um, ideally, you know, even if I'm not haven't looked at that area of the code in a long time, I can the standard is clear to me and then I come in and I can then get into the nitty gritty details rather than trying to I don't think documenting that really works you know, in hyper detail, because it gets out of date. That's also my experience with my my company that I had in London. This was kind of a bigger issue because we, we had many more employees and people were coming and going over the lifetime of the company. And it's a big challenge to make sure knowledge doesn't get lost.
0: Very right? yeah. big challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. I even found when I was just a one-person operation, I would struggle to keep the knowledge. And sometimes I need something to actually refresh it in my head I'll tell you a specific example, we had one company that would order 50 licenses of our software at a time, roughly every three or four months. And they would sell that to their, or give it away to their customers on some sort of frequent flyer or type of program or points program. Yeah. And it happened just seldom enough that I kind of didn't really remember the whole process each time. Three or four months was just long enough for me to struggle. It's like, how do I generate those licenses again? Um, yeah, how do I do it the invoice? Who do I, well, how much is the invoice for? How much did we agree to charge them? Who do I send it to? How do I make sure it's paid? And yeah, that was actually the, the first thing problem. I wrote down. The very first thing was documenting that. And I just got into the habit of every time I had to do this task again, following the steps. And if any step had become out of date, I would update it. yeah you
1: know what you know what in some ways actually technical systems are kind of easier to document in that regard particularly like like i said if you follow consistent standards like you um, tests and things and or like for us we have a lot of servers doing all kinds of different things but then each type of server you know either we have a docker file or, or like a very clear like setup script and process and it's just a matter of then running it and but the business processes are much harder in some ways. And yeah, it's exactly yeah. that. Like once you get to the point where you have hundreds of customers and you have, uh, you know, you have some customers with weird special deals and things like that. And, you know, like, like what do you do when you have a customer? I actually, this week I had an interaction. We have this one customer, you know, and it's a reasonable chunk of money. So, and, you know, they said like, oh, we want to be invoice. And so I said, okay, you know, if it's an annual plan, you can be employees like well, we want to do semi-annual. Oh. and I'm like like <laughs> what? I mean, who does semi annual but, but okay, fine. You know, it's it's like just enough money where you're like, okay, I don't want to say no to this. But on the other hand, now it's like every six months, you know, it, you know, it's just off schedule from everyone else. So so what do you do in those cases? Do you do you accept the customer's request? Obviously, my initial reaction is try to convince them why this request. Is a pain in the ass, but let's assume you don't succeed. And so then you're like, all right, I'm going to accept this request. And, but, you know, then you have this weird one-off thing that yeah. somehow, you know, you've got to keep space somewhere in your head yeah. to remember this
0: detail. And that six months is seldom enough that you will forget. And also because it's just, you're just doing it for one person. You're not going to make much effort to optimize it. So you, uh, yeah, that's, I, I don't like that. I've been trying to say no more often to people asking for strange requests. Yeah, uh, I agree. Obviously, it depends on the
1: the amount of money involved, or, or you know who the customer is, or whatever. So yeah, well, um, you
0: should you should make sure it works because you want this customer to pay so that you get money to go into the Stripe Climate Fund and rescue our planet. You know what? Well, that that is a an argument I can now use as
1: to why they should pay on credit card. But on the other hand, Stripe is quite expensive. You know, I not not the one percent for the climate fund, but the um, just the general processing fee. Yeah. So, you know, I do kind of prefer that some big customers move to invoicing because it's like, why should I be paying, you know, card processing fees, especially, you know, the card processing fee represents that you're they're kind of taking a risk, right? You know, like the Stripe is paying you. Or the credit card company is paying you and they don't yet have the money from the end customer. But if this is a customer I've been doing business with for many years, there's not really that much of a risk, right? And so
0: the the processing fee is disproportionate. Even though Stripe's Stripe's situation makes perfect sense from their perspective, it still makes sense for you to try to avoid paying that fee, even though they are absorbing the fraud risk, etc. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, what are your plans on how are you trying to deal with this knowledge sharing
1: issue because you have a bigger team and then and you have the challenge of you have two different products now, so i can it can imagine it's easy to get confused to misremember how you know was that on this product or
0: that product you know I searched for years for the perfect product, and then eventually I concluded there wasn't the perfect product to help with this and then just after I concluded that, I found it and it's called notion uh, All right. I really, really like notion. it's the product I was looking for for years, and I found it about two years ago, uh, at that point I had, we were four or five and everybody took to it immediately. I just told everybody anything you need to write down about how we do things, put it in notion. And I tried to lead by example. I'm not very good at actually documenting things, but um, people would ask me questions and I'd say, Oh, could you look for it in notion or I'll but, answer you in notion and it works. You know, it actually is. But let of-
1: me ask Steve, how yeah. is notion better than any other wiki Tool. I mean, there have been wiki tools around for a long time, or like I said, like we just use text files that are then in Git. You know, which which also has some advantages because then it's inversion control and stuff. But like you still have to you still have to go and write something, put yeah. the content in there, and yeah. then it has to be maintained. You know, the second you put it in there, it's out of date. Yeah. So
0: yeah, I think they've nailed a lot of usability stuff and and design stuff, but ultimately there's still that problem that uh, relies on people being not being people. You know, people by their very nature will only do the work they need to do. They're not going to go and prepare for six months. But I don't know. Somehow it's just worked for us. Some maybe I just have the type of people on my team who like to document stuff or so on. Hmm. And in fact, this was a problem as we were growing the team is that they would not understand why things were the way they were or they'd want to change things or redo things we had already done. And I found that a bit frustrating and I had to realize oh well, of course, how can these people know what's going on in my head? These decisions that were made in my head and are stored only in my head, how can anyone know about that?
1: Yeah. I don't, you know, there are some companies that you read about that have this culture of like you have to write down things. And but the one question I always have about that, or you know, see some of these people's like, oh, writing is the the super skill and being able to mm. clearly express your thoughts or whatever. I, I have a couple issues with that. First of all, just because you write something doesn't mean the other guy reads it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know about you, but like, it, yeah. on the one hand, it, it's kind of a paradox, right? Because on the one hand, we say, oh, you need to clearly write your whole logic and produce this long memo about why we're doing this or whatever. And on the other hand, we say, oh, your you know, your website don't have a lot of text because people won't read.
0: Yeah. So Which yeah. is it?
1: Either people yeah. are going to read
0: or people are not going to read. So actually, that raises a good point of what one of the things I like about Notion. It has search that actually works. <laughs> you know how frustrating it is when you search for some word and you get pages and pages of results that have the same word but they're not relevant right. at all. Yeah, um, And it actually does really, really well. And something else in Notion that I've only discovered since we had the second product is it makes it really easy to have two completely different workspaces, one for each product, and you can assign who who has access to which workspace. And that's worked really well for us especially with Sabre Feedback having the issues I explained earlier in this episode about migrating into a new server and finding there were some important steps that weren't documented but only lived in somebody's head. Like right. Every time we encounter that, it goes to Notion. And, and I, I actually use that quite a lot, especially as I'm switching between products a lot. I keep having to refresh myself. Like every time I need to connect to a server or it'll go about the invoicing for pay-by-invoice customers, I keep going back to Notion to see what we've written there. Uh, whether it will work when we grow, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think anyone solved this. But Notion, Notion is better, much better than what we were using in the past, which was Confluence for a while, and then it was Google Docs. And are you able to
1: convince your team members of the value of documenting their work? I mean, they're they're everyone's documenting kind of at the same standard and level, or because sometimes uh, what I found is you had some people on the team who were meticulous documenters, yeah. almost to the you know, where they would over document, you know, they mm-hmm. would spend, you know, five minutes doing the work and then five hours documenting it. Um, and again, then it would be out of date immediately. Or you have people who are just like, oh, I can't be bothered or whatever, you know. And so that also creates problems because you have different levels of, of completeness of the documentations and different expectations of what can, what good documentation
0: consists of. So I've actually worked in an organization that had a knowledge management like you de- system like you described just one or two people would write tons of stuff and nobody would read it because it was way too much. And, um, for, for us, luckily it's just working. I think I, by chance or design, or I, I I search for certain types of um, personalities, but they're, they're using it a lot. Just like this week, we've been working on changing the way we build feature upvotes dashboard. And Stefano who's doing that just wrote to me like, Oh, here's what you need to know, but the full information is in Notion. Like I didn't ask him to do it. It's just something he knew to do. And uh, so this is working for us at the moment. Maybe it'll be a struggle if we grow. don't know if we will grow, but yeah, and I don't have the answer. But it's um, it is a tough problem.
1: It's hard, especially as you're small, to force yourself to take the time to document and... You know, if you're a one-person thing, then obviously it's easy to just think, oh, I'll remember this, and then you don't remember it. I mean, this is why, I don't know if you recall, but I think earlier in the year when we talked about tips for SaaS businesses, you know, one of our tips was we we actually have a couple freelancers who just do like one day a month for us. And it's mainly because that then forces us to document things.
0: And, I do remember that. That was a really good organized.
1: Yeah. So on the, on the one hand, it's kind of like an insurance policy in that I know that then at least we have someone who knows something about our system in the event of a disaster. Like if I need, if we need some help with something, but because they're only doing one day a month, it's not critical, urgent things that, that we yeah. give to them. It's more just nice to have, but it forces us to document our, our processes at, at least to a degree. And so system by system, as the months go by... You know, we kind of like explain these different systems to the freelancer and have that as a basis for kind of knowledge sharing as well.
0: I remember when you told that told me that. And I thought at the time it was very smart, and I still think it's very smart. Yeah, people often tell me that, Steve. they a lot of <my> ideas. Really. <laughs> and they tell you you could look into, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. Is that in a knowledge sharing system anywhere? <laughs> no. It, it, this this podcast is is my my
1: primary. <laughs> repository of of these delightful gems of wisdom.
0: I've actually enjoyed being more diligent about this knowledge management and knowledge sharing with Sabre Feedback, mostly because I've been learning so much and I've been needing to write it down. And uh, just having a a shared place to put it just immediately means other people can access it. It also forces me to be aware that I'm having to write for possible other audience. So I can't like put in snarky comments and half completed thoughts, but I actually have to write properly. It's true. I mean, you have to be much more disciplined as the
1: team grows and, or like in your case, like I said, juggling two products or it's hard, man. And then, yeah, the, um, this is one thing I always, at, at my old company, you know, we was a, we ran it for 10 years. And so people would come and go through the organization We also work quite a lot with, we had a very successful program where we would bring in students for a semester or something, you know, computer science students who would have to do kind of a a work placement for a semester. And this was great because they were usually highly motivated, but it also means as as someone building technical systems, you can't assume that the person who's going to be working on this is, is like you know, has 20 years of experience and yeah. really understands the problem space and things yeah. like that, you know, it's more likely it's the guy who started last week for whom English is his third language, uh, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't know the industry at all
0: and yet yeah. your systems don't work. So, yeah. yeah. And my like students typically have worked on um, programs maximum five hundred lines of code in, in size, and you know, it's unfair to expect them to understand the bigger picture issues and so. Sure, or to understand,
1: you know, all the history and like uh, of your industry, of your business, of why things. That, you know, obviously they don't. So, and and it's your system and your processes that need to deal with that. Not, uh, of course, you need to educate the student or the the new employee, but that's going to take time. So you have to have quite resilient systems to prevent hmm.
0: the employees from shooting themselves in the foot. Right, right. And accidentally bringing down a system and it's your fault because you didn't give them adequate documentation or warnings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, sorry, I don't have all the answers on this, but it's. Uh, I do hope that um, your knowledge sharing sessions with your co-founder help start helping solve the problem.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it, it's going to be fun. Also, as kind of a in a weird way kind of as a team building thing because I, I I'm, I'm I like this format where each week we alternate and each person could say like, you know, how the hell does this thing work? I have yeah. no, no idea.
0: Yeah. That's so. great. Okay. That's <laughs> all we have time for today. So we will be back next week and that's all. See you, Ed. See you soon. Bye. Bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm.